that joke's not going to be funnier now that my mic's on. <laughs> there were all sorts of problems with that joke, all sorts of problems, and it's clear now that I'm not a comedian. I'm glad that we've got that out of the way, because we're not here to laugh, this is church, and uh, we're here to listen to God's word and reflect on it together. But there are all sorts of different kinds of comedians. Um, there are the ones that love telling stories, so they're good storytellers, and as they're telling the story, there's lots of funny bits in it, and then hopefully at the end there's something funny, there's a twist and a punchline. Then there are the comedians that have lots of jokes that, um, uh, lots of little jokes, succinct jokes that they thread together, but all comedy works in a similar fashion. There's the setup, and there's the punchline. I didn't do either of those very well before, but there's the setup and the punchline. In the setup, the comedian is trying to draw his audience down a particular path. He's getting them all together. And then when the punchline comes, there's a little twist or there's a turn, there's something unexpected, something different. Today's passage is the setup. Chapter 10 is the punchline. For those of you that have your Bibles and have it open, you're now looking at chapter 10 going, I wonder what the punchline is. Um, for those of you that are looking now at chapter 10 going, oh yes, maybe you get the punchline, maybe you don't. Good, come back next week, the punchline's next week. Today we're looking at the setup. There's a setup for this punchline. And with good setups, they're trying to get people ready for what's to come, but not at the same time. It's always something unexpected, something different, a twist. And so I want to look at today how our passage is a setup. It's a setup for what's to come. And Peter has been reintroduced to us because we took a little break from Peter. If you th look at um, in chapter 9, we came to Saul, who will later become known as the Apostle Paul. Now we come back to Peter. And so Peter's being set up for something. And if we watch, we'll see where that's leading. And so we're looking particularly at the story of the healing of Aeneas and Tabitha. And so that's from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, which we just read. And so one of the things I want to do to help us understand how this is a setup is to zoom out for a moment and see how this passage works in Acts as a whole. What's been the build-up to this? And so um, if we look back right at the beginning of Acts, what do you have? You have Jesus. He's, um, after his resurrection, it says it's, he spent 40 days with the disciples convincing them that he was alive, and what was he doing? Telling them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And what's one of the first questions the disciples ask him? Is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He's been telling them about the kingdom of God. They're asking about the kingdom of Israel. It sounds like he doesn't answer them when he says, it's not for you to know the times that the Father is set by his own authority. But he does answer them. 
He answers them by saying that they're going to be empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they're thinking about the kingdom of Israel, and he's pushing their vision out. So that's how Acts opens, and we're wondering where this is heading. And so as that takes place, we ask ourselves, what is this new movement and this might be one of the questions people ask, well, what, what is the purpose of Luke writing this? It might be that people are asking, what is this new movement? Is this a new cult? And so Luke is very keen to help people see how this is connected to the one true faith, to the Jewish faith, that this is the fulfilment of the promises given. And this is indeed a movement of God. In fact, a Pharisee himself stands up and says, if this is of human origin, don't worry about it. We don't need to do anything. But if it's of God, we won't be able to stop it. And so we have these thoughts running through our mind. And we're watching this primarily Jewish movement soon to become a Gentile movement. And so questions around, is this a legitimate movement? And so we have the story of Peter at the start and then we're introduced to Saul and we're told that Saul will be God's instrument to the Gentiles but then we come back to Peter remembering that Peter has been taking this message primarily first to the Jews and so it comes back to Peter and what we see in our story as we come to our story is a healing, two healings well, one's a healing and one's a, ra a raising from the dead. And again, we're reminded that Peter indeed is authorised. These miracles attest to his testimony and to what he bears witness to. And so as we now zoom in on this passage, we start to see maybe how is this a setup? How is this a setup? Well, Peter travelled the country. He went to visit the Lord's people who lived at Lydda. Lydda, primarily a Jewish place. He performs a miracle. Aeneas, who is paralysed, is now able to walk. And all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. That's verse 35. So Lydda and Sharon, Jewish. Sharon moving out a bit, maybe a little bit more mixed. But then it moves to Joppa. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always uh, doing good and helping the poor. There's a particular focus on Tabitha. There's a particular focus on the type of person that she was. Before they tell us what happens, that she got sick and died, that she's looked upon as somebody who was always doing good and helping the poor. This is a generous life. A life poured out to others and for others. But both Aeneas and Tabitha, in various ways, represent the weak and the poor themselves. Anyone that's lived with physical ailments and difficulties understands the brokenness and limitations of the human body and our human life. And Tabitha, in those times, in those days as a woman, considered the inferior sex. This is the weak and the poor. And this is 
good news for the weak and the poor that has come. Now, Aeneas, we don't know if he was a Christian yet, but there's a good chance that he may have been. But Tabitha, we do know that she was a disciple, a believer. And the good news has come to her. And once it comes, we become people who are not only recipients of this good news as weak and poor people, but this becomes good news for the weak and the poor. And so Tabitha pours out her life. And, and we hear that this is happening in a town named Joppa. Now Joppa is named just a few times in the Bible. One place is particularly famous. It's in an Old Testament book, the book of Jonah. And so Joppa is named a couple of times. And so right at the end you'll see um, our last verse, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Again, this is part of our setup. So if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh. Instead, he heads down to Joppa to get on a ship to Tarshish in the opposite direction. It's almost as though Joppa's the place where which way will we go? And here we have Peter in Joppa. So he's moved from Lydda, and in Lydda and Sharon, people have heard of what's happened and are turning to the Lord. He's now in Joppa, a more Gentile town, a seaport. Which way will Peter go? This is a setup for what's to come. But in this setup, we see that these miracles, these miracles are always acts of compassion. Unexpected grace. You'll see that Tabitha was somebody that meant a lot to the people there. They, they felt so strongly for her that they sent disciples to go and get uh, Peter and call him back. And the widows are particularly mentioned there. That, uh, the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. And then when she's brought back to life, it's to the widows. Um, this became, um, oh, sorry, verse uh, 41. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. Tabitha being raised back to life was an act of compassion to those whom she'd been serving. This is a gospel of the weak and the poor for the weak and the poor. If I were to come back for a moment to where I started, there's a setup and there's a punchline. In this passage, we can think about what it means to prepare for the punchline. The point of a punchline is you actually don't see it coming. That's the point. The, Usually a joke told a few times after a while isn't quite as funny as the first time that you heard it. But there is a way in which sometimes people could respond not so well to the punchline. If I move away from comedy for a moment and say, life is full of setup and punchlines. That our days are full of setups and punchlines. There are different ways in which people might respond to the punchline. 
If this whole movement is a movement of God and the punchline is going to be God's punchline, there are different ways in which we can respond. Sometimes we respond in a resistant way due to the fear of something new. And God's grace is always an unexpected surprise. But sometimes we can respond in a resistant way. Sometimes we can respond in a forceful way. That is, as an attempt to control the unpredictable, the uncertainty of life. And certainly in our times, we all know something of that. So sometimes we're hesitant, and we've all, we all know something of new things as well. In all this unpredictability and uncertainty, we've all had to experience new things. And sometimes we respond to these new things with fear. And in all this uncertainty and unpredictability, sometimes we respond forcefully, trying to control what we can. But what is the hoped-for response to a good punchline? Coming back to comedy, a good response is that there's a response of joy and delight that expresses itself in laughter. A good response to a punchline is joy and delight expressed in laughter. As people of the Spirit, as people of the Spirit, we're called to respond to God's punchlines with joy and delight at His unexpected grace. And there are signs all along the way getting us ready for something that seems familiar but yet is somehow surprising at the same time. And as a church and as a people living in these times, we want to see the movement of God and where it's heading. We want to be ready for the punchline. One of the most significant ways of doing that is by recognising that we are the weak and the poor. It's the weak and the poor that respond with delight and joy to the unexpected grace. It's a gospel for the weak and the poor, for the weak and the poor. The people most qualified to share the good news are the weak and the poor. People who know their own weaknesses and poverty and are delighted and full of joy at God's continual grace. They're the people most qualified for sharing this good news. And also the people most ready to have the right response to God's punchlines, which happen every day for us. This week, don't need to know the details, but I had a very, very cold shower. And I found myself laughing, which wouldn't be my normal response. But sometimes we learn to see the funny side. 
when others would not see it as so funny. The people that understand their own weakness and poverty and are recipients of God's unexpected grace can laugh at the most strangest of things. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a people to be ready for your punchlines, which occur for us so many times in a day. I pray that we'd learn to laugh with you. I pray that you will fill us with joy and delight at your surprising and unexpected grace, which flows from your compassion for us and love for us. A compassion and love which you have poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. May we be people of the Spirit, ready to laugh with you and help others to laugh with you. In Jesus' name, amen.